0: You're going stay.
1: i just squint the whole
0: time. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to this gathering of Christ Our Savior Baptist Church. This morning, we've gathered to praise the God who reveals. To ha- help you uh, with worship this morning, this sound like I'm in a big stadium, echoing throughout. So, very exciting, dramatic. Uh, to help you with worship this morning, you'll be helped to have a bulletin. Uh, so, grab one of those off the back table if you haven't already. And I would direct your attention to the announcements on the back. So uh, announcement for, for all of you, Sunday school begins next Sunday, again, so we took a winter break and we'll be launching again with our adults and kids classes. Sunday school um, begins at 9.15 and worship at 10.30, and if you can help with setting up chairs, you can arrive at 8.50 for that. So that will go throughout the spring. and. uh not sure exactly how long we'll go into the summer, but we'll we'll be announcing that when the time comes. The other big announcement is that next Sunday night, so the sixth, uh, Sunday the seventh at 6 p.m., we are going to be meeting not here, but we're going to be meeting in the building of Genesis Community Church for a members meeting. Uh, Part of the purpose of that members' meeting is to to announce the 2024 budget, so we'll be offering that as information. We won't be voting on that, but we'll be explaining that to you. But we also hope to be presenting a couple of possibilities uh, for a new location for our church. As I mentioned last Sunday, one of the options is this church building we'll be meeting in, that this building is up for sale, and so it's a potential place for us to meet. Um, Another option may be renting a church uh, that's just west of Tomball. So we'll be presenting those to you, explaining kind of the the work we've already done and what it might look like to pursue one of those options, and trying to get your feedback. But this will be your chance to see the facility in the in the flesh and and know what what it is we're proposing. So please make sure to come to that next Sunday night at 6 p.m. if you're a member of the church. So with that, I'll give your attention back to the first page of the bulletin for our call to worship. We begin our worship services each week with a a call to worship from God's word. And you can think of this as, as God calling us out of the world into his glorious presence. So for this hour, here we are gathered by faith in Christ in the presence of God to offer him worship. But we come to worship God at his gracious invitation. So as we think about worshiping the God who reveals, let's see how he's revealed himself here through the words of King David. This is 1st Chronicles chapter 29 verse 10. You can turn to page 357 in the Bible's provided to find this reading. 1st Chronicles 29:10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, "Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever." Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over it all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please join me as we call upon the name of the God who reveals. Almighty God, all things are yours, all power, glory, wisdom, and knowledge. Without your gracious, revealing these things to us, we would be lost in ignorance, dead in our sin. And so we are gathered here this morning because, in your gracious will, you have shown us our sin and our need of Christ. You have shown us Christ's beauty and glory and goodness and the sufficiency of his work on the cross. Because you've revealed yourself to us, we've come to you. And we come to you worshiping to offer you praise and thanks. We pray that you would receive all that we have to offer you this morning, that it would be honoring to you, that you would purify it, that you would use our worship of you to encourage us, that we would be built up in faith, convicted of sin, encouraged to endure in all things. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we prepare to sing our first hymn All Glory Be to Christ.
2: that vanishes and dawn, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ, our King, all glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing, all glory. On earth as is above, who is himself our daily bread, praise him, the Lord of love. Let living water satisfy the thirsty without price. We'll take a cup of kindness, yet all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King, all glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing, all glory be to Christ. When on the day the great I am, the faithful and the true, For sinners slain Is making all things new Behold, our God shall live with us And be our steadfast light And we shall let his people be All glory be to Christ All glory be to Christ Christ our King, all glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sink. All glory be to Christ.
3: Amen.
4: Good morning. Happy New Year. Our Old Testament reading this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 40, and that can be found on page 148 of the Bibles provided. The the entirety of chapter 4 of Deuteronomy is actually a very moving discourse by Moses to the Israelites, exhorting them as they're about to go into the promised land, and it's Poignant in a way because Moses knows by this point that he won't be going with them. So we begin reading in again Deuteronomy 4 verse 25. Hear God's word. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat, eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him, if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. For ask now of the days that are past which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask him and ask from one end of the heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There was no other besides Him. Out of heaven He let you hear His voice that He might discipline you. And on earth He let you see His great fire, and you heard His words out of the midst of the fire. And because He loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is to this day. Know therefore today, and lay it to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above, and on the earth beneath, there is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. This is God's word.
2: Thanks be to God.
4: Please join me in prayer. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we praise you today because you are the God who reveals. We praise you because you have revealed yourself To your people in a way that's never been done. You've you've, um, revealed yourself by the creation which testifies to your glory. You have revealed yourself through the prophets, through your law, through the Apostles, through your word as a whole and especially through your son who humbled himself and came to earth and showed us who God is and what love really is that he would lay down his life for sinners, that the righteous would sacrifice for the unrighteous, the good would sacrifice for the bad, the beautiful would sacrifice for the ugly. Father, we praise you because you have done that and our prayer today is that you would humble us and give us the good sense to respond with obedience and adoration. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And now if you would stand and we'll sing on page three, How a Foundation.
2: the Lord is made for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Still give you aid, a strength that you help you and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathways shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design Your dross to consume and your gold to refine (coughs) The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose I will not, I will not desert to his foes That's all the all hell should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never
0: forsake.
3: Be seated.
5: Our New Testament reading is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. It can be found in the Bibles provided on page 972. Galatians 1, verse 11. Listen to God's word. For I would have you know, brothers, So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then... After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas who, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is God's Word.
1: So this morning we've already read about how God uniquely reveals himself. He does what no other God can do and calls the people for himself and saves them. We've seen how his revelation of himself transformed Paul's life. He turned this man who was trying to destroy the faith into one who preached the faith. We've sung about this revelation of God and how firm a foundation. And so now we're going to confess the truth of God's revelation of himself. Today, we're using the Westminster Confession, or the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is part of this uh, set of documents that was produced almost 400 years ago as a way for Presbyterians in England to clarify and define their faith, England and Scotland. So they're trying to say, here is what we believe, here's what makes us a church. And here's how they begin to talk about what God's Word is. So I'm going to read these questions and we'll answer them together. Brothers and sisters, What is the word of God? The holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience. And how does it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? The scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, to which is to give all glory to God, by their light and power, to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the hearts of man, is alone able to fully persuade it, that they are the very Word of God. Amen. Join me now as we bring our requests to the Lord. Our Father, we are grateful that we can come before you with the needs we have, that you command us to do this, to make our requests known to you, to ask each day for our daily bread. Here we glorify you by depending on you, by making it clear that all that we have and need comes from you. Father, we pray that you would give us what we need most, that you would give us much of Christ. Help us to know and rejoice in the fact that our names are written in heaven, that you have revealed your son to us. Father, we pray that this truth would grip us such that our whole lives are reoriented around the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. We pray that this reality would show up in the way that we as church members speak to each other. That here as we gather at times like this and in other less formal times that we talk to each other about who you are, that we rejoice in Jesus, in his majesty and glory and goodness and sacrifice and his rule over our lives. We want to have conversations that are deep and meaningful, that edify, that correct, that help one another grow in Christ. Father, we pray that this would start here in our church, among our relationships, and then it would spill over, that we would become so accustomed to speaking of you and the gospel that when we talk with unbelievers in our community or at our work, in our homes, that our words would be gospel words. We pray for boldness to preach the gospel. Even as many of our neighbors perhaps will be trying to make and keep New Year's resolutions, we Pray that we'll encourage them that they can't save themselves, but they can only rest in you and find salvation from faith in Christ. We pray that you'd give us conviction that would lead to conversations and proclamation. We thank you, Father, for the gift of the gospel that saved us. Father, we thank you for the time we have now to gather here and meet, and we thank you for a building to meet in that's warm and dry. Thank you for Vicky and her care for us and allowing us to, to use this space each week. And yet we also pray for our own place, a place that we call, we call our own, a place that would be a permanent place for us in the community. So we pray that you would grant us wisdom as we consider options along these lines, that you'd grant uh, wisdom to those who have buildings to sell or rent, that you would help us all to come to a decision that would be best for our church, where we can plant ourselves and be a permanent witness to the gospel. Father, it's our desire that we reach our community, but that we also reach the folks who will come in the future, that future citizens of Northwest Houston will have a place to go where they can hear the gospel preached, and they can see Christians loving each other and reflecting Christ. We thank you that there are other churches in our area that are doing this. We thank you for the brothers and sisters at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, Father, we know that they've experienced a sorrowful time in, in having their pastor move away and then, and then die tragically. And so we pray you'd provide for them a new pastor. Give wisdom to the elders there and the members as they endure this time with interim pre- preachers and help them to not neglect uh, the, the good hope that they have in Christ. And to, to keep working together as a church to image Christ. We also thank you for churches around the, the nation that are preaching the gospel. This morning, we remember our brothers and sisters at Delray Baptist Church in Virginia. We thank you for their pastor, Garrett Kell, and the ministry he's had among many of us in writing books and speaking. Father, we we pray that you would help his ministry to continue and the elders there, that Delray would continue to be a church where the gospel is preached and evangelists are raised up and sent out to plant churches and take the gospel around the world. Uh, We pray especially for Garrett and his wife Carrie right now as their daughter is ill in the hospital and in a very serious way. Give them endurance and hope and bring healing, Father, we pray. Father, we pray for our brothers that we support that are helping to get the gospel around the globe. This morning we remember our brother Steve Henry and his work with Frontiers as he coaches and mentors missionaries. We pray, Father, for your help for him that he would be encouraged by the word himself and so that he would have an abundance of gospel words to share with others. Give him wisdom as he counsels men and women who are in dangerous places. Help him to know ways to encourage them. I pray that you would fortify these men and women who have taken the step to follow Jesus into dangerous places, the missionaries on the ground in the Muslim world. Father, we pray that their sacrifice would be honored we pray that their, that their ministries would be fruitful and that you would be pleased to save many out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Father, we know that you've placed us in this world to be salt and light. We pray for those in authority over us, that you'd allow them to rule in such a way so that we can be at peace with all men. This morning, we pray for the Speaker of the House Mike Johnson. Father, we thank thank you for this man who is a professing believer, someone who seems to take his faith very seriously, and we pray that he would continue to hold to Christ in the midst of leading in a very difficult time, a time when our country is polarized and it's a difficult thing to be the speaker of the house. Father, we pray that you give him grace to lead humbly and with wisdom. We pray that you'd remove any selfish ambition from him, and that he would lead in such a way that serves our country well. For our safety, and for justice to be done. Father, we pray that in all things that you would be merciful to us. We confess that we don't deserve your kindness and mercy, and yet you've been pleased to bring us to yourself. And so we pray for continued mercy for ourselves and our neighbors, that they may live in a land of peace where the gospel is freely preached. Father, we pray now as we come to your word that you would open our ears and enlighten our eyes We pray that you'd give us hearts that are receptive to what you reveal. And since you are the God who reveals all things, we ask you to graciously reveal yourself to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. And turn to chapter 9, verse 51. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've given you or you've got off the back table, this reading begins on 868, Luke 9:51. We'll read the text in a minute. You might wonder why anyone should pick up the book of Luke and begin preaching at Luke 9, verse 51. You know, it sounds like I was just in the office with the dartboard picking out verses at random. Uh, if you have a good memory, then hopefully you recall that last, at the end of last year and uh, into this year, we did a series through Luke, starting in chapter 1, and we went through chapter 9, verse 50. So we left off at verse 50 sometime, I think, in April. Uh, and now we pick up at verse 51. That still leaves the question of, of why, why stop there? And part of the reason we stopped there is I, I want you guys as a church to have exposure to lots of different parts of the Bible throughout the year. So we don't spend the whole year usually in a one book. We, we go to different places. We, we studied in Galatians for a time this year, right? we we studied in other parts of the Old Testament as well. We, we try to get ourselves a, a varied diet of different parts and genres of God's Word. So we, we took a break from Luke, but now we're coming back to it. And we pick up here because this really begins a new section of the book, If Luke were being kind of edited and formatted by a modern editor, they would have started a new chapter here at verse 51 because the first nine plus chapters of Luke are focused on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So the area around the Sea of Galilee, this is north of Jerusalem. And they're focused on Jesus' ministry there, but especially on revealing and answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? So we saw, saw kind of a, a collage of portraits of Jesus in the first nine chapters of Luke. The first portrait is of his birth, right? Of him coming as the, the savior of Israel. He's the one who's going to bring comfort. He's the long-awaited king that's in David's line. So he's the king like David who's going to comfort and save Israel. Zechariah prophesied that Jesus was the one who is like the sun rising on Israel as they sit in darkness, the darkness of the valley of the shadow of death. So that's Israel. They're, they're in sin and exile, and they're waiting for their Savior to come, and Jesus has come. But we also see Jesus as the, the one whom Isaiah prophesied. So in chapter 4 of Luke, one of the most important passages in, the, in this first part of the book is Luke. Uh, Jesus goes to Nazareth, where he's from, and he goes to the synagogue, and he reads the Bible there. He opens up the scroll of Isaiah And he reads a passage that says, uh, one has come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus reads this, and he says, today this is fulfilled in your presence. It's me. I'm the one who's come to, to liberate the captives and to give sight to the blind. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus raises a dead man. And then he goes to this dinner party, a famous dinner party, where he sits down with Simon the Pharisee, and he notes how Simon doesn't provide normal hospitality, but this terribly sinful woman. I mean, she's just known as a great sinner in the community. She comes in, and she begins to to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. And Jesus says to this notoriously sinful woman, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus is showing us that he's God. Only God can raise the dead, and only God can forgive sins. As a matter of fact, the, the dinner companions there who witnessed this say, Who is this who forgives sins? And the answer is, only God can do it. Jesus is God. He's this great king. He's the long-awaited one. Come to his people. But yet in the same chapter 9, is one of the first times in Luke's gospel that Jesus predicts his death. He tells his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. In the same chapter 9, he's also exalted on the Mount of Transfiguration where he's momentarily transformed into this radiant being with Elijah and Moses. He's, he's presented in these two seemingly contradictory pictures. Glorious God, the long-awaited king, and the one who must suffer. The one who must die. These pictures are hard to reconcile, the Father's Son, the Chosen One, the suffering Savior. How do we make sense of them? We see in this passage before us, disciples trying to make sense of Jesus. The first few verses we're going to read here in a second record three disciples coming to Jesus uh, and him calling them, and it's clear there's a lot of confusion about what Jesus is about. Not only are these unnamed disciples confused, but James and John himself. They had just seen Jesus transfigured on the mountain. And when they see Jesus being rejected in Samaria, they want to do what Elijah did in Samaria and call down fire on those who reject God's will. People are confused about Jesus. What do we do with him? How do we understand him? How do we know him? As Luke turns the corner, Here in chapter 9, he begins by telling us in verse 51 that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus has now announced he's going to go to Jerusalem and die, and now he's going. He's resolved. He set his face to go. And this begins this new section of the book where Luke is going to show us Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, teaching his disciples what it means to know and follow him. And we get to go along for the ride. As we study Luke, especially these next 10 chapters, we are going to find out what does it mean to know and follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? So this morning, we're going to divide up the text under three headings. First, we're going to see that disciples must be prepared for rejection. Disciples must be prepared for rejection. Disciples proclaim the kingdom of God. That's number two. Disciples proclaim the kingdom of God. And finally, disciples represent their king. Disciples represent their king. We're going to use each of these three unnamed disciples in chapter 9, verses 57 through 62 as kind of our jumping off point. The disciples must be prepared for rejection, proclaim the kingdom, and represent their king. Let's go ahead and read this whole passage. Starting in Luke 9, 51, we're going to read down through chapter 10, verse 24. Again, this starts on page 868 of the Bibles provided. I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is God's Word. Be
2: to
1: God. So we see this passage, it's kind of divided up into three main chunks. We kind of have the introductory chunk, 951, through the end of chapter 9, where Jesus is starting his journey and we have these interactions with these confused disciples. Then we have a, a large section, which is Jesus' speech to the 72 disciples as he sends them out. And he's got these instructions for them about how to go about their business. He's got this word of warning to these towns where he's been ministering, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum. And he says to them that they're going to face judgment because they've seen these mighty acts and they've rejected him. Then he's got this, these concluding words to his disciples where he, he tells them about how that they represent him. And that he's revealed himself to them. And he, he even blesses them because they have seen the truth about him. Those are the three major chunks of the passage. But as I said, I, I think it's helpful to use these, these three unnamed disciples, or, or maybe we should call them would-be disciples, because we're not really sure that they followed him, and use them as a lens to look at this passage. So the the first would-be disciple comes to him in verse 57, and this fellow is enthusiastic to volunteer. He says, I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. But Jesus seems to discourage him. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. As I said, Jesus is confusing, isn't he? We've already rehearsed some of Jesus' identity, right? He's Israel's God and king, the one they've been waiting for. He's finally come. He's casting out demons. He's healing. He's, he rules over even the fish in the lake, right? He, he brings all these fish into Peter's boat in chapter 3. People can see that his teaching is uniquely authoritative. And the scriptures have prophesied about his coming. Finally, the one we've been waiting for is here. It's natural for would-be followers to look at Jesus and think, well, this is just time for, for one victory after another. Right? He's come, he's healing, he's doing all these things, he's been transfigured. It's time for God's victory to be manifested on earth. And it's time for anyone who doesn't get on board to receive immediate judgment. That would be the, the natural way of thinking, right? Jesus can do that. He could bring down God's fire from heaven upon mm-hmm. these people. If, if Elijah could have done it in the Old Testament, which he did in 2 Kings 1, then Jesus could do it. And, and it would be kind of natural to think, well, that's what's about to happen. We're about to see God's presence on earth like we've never seen it before. But then you have these predictions about death. He's going to die in Jerusalem at the hands of Israel's leaders, And he not only predicted his death, he's he's now saying, I'm going there. The time has come for me to be taken up, he says, which is a reference to his ascension. But we know it's his ascension to heaven, going up to heaven, follows follows his death. Jesus must face death first. Before the glory comes. You'd think that these... Statements about his death didn't settle the issue. It makes it clear, okay, death is going to happen. we got to grapple with this. But it's a lesson that the disciples of Jesus are slow to learn, aren't they? And If we're honest, we have to admit it's a lesson we're slow to learn, too. We desperately want to believe that our following of Jesus won't require us being rejected. But Jesus says that he's going to be rejected. That he has come and he has no place to lay his head. And to follow him is to to join him in that rejection. And rejection and persecution are clear throughout this passage. As Jesus prepares the disciples to go, he prepares them to be rejected. He, He says, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You're exposed to danger, you're vulnerable. He tells them, you're going to enter some towns, and they're not going to receive you. I mean, it's already happened, right? The the disciples go to this village in Samaria, right? And they're rejected. He says, that's going to happen again. I mean, imagine walking for hours to a place, the dusty streets and roads and byways of Samaria, and you finally get there. You're tired, you're dirty, you're hungry. And Jesus told you what to say, And you say it, and you're not received. There's no room for you in this town. Keep walking, buddy. And the reason they're not going to take you in is because of the message you've been given by God, the message you've come to deliver. This rejection is what disciples sign up for. This is so challenging for us because it's true, it is true. The kingdom of God does mean victory. It does mean victory is coming. Jesus is God, he has come to rule. And there's ways we're already seeing victory. We see healings, we see demons cast out. But we also see that the kingdom of God is for the moment hidden. Its glory delayed. This is what disciples need to understand. James and John failed to understand this, right? In the first few verses of our passage. They'd seen Jesus transfigured into this glorious state, and they thought, well, now is the time. The glorious one's been revealed. Jesus is going to unleash some signs and wonders, like Moses did upon Pharaoh, like Elijah did upon those rebellious prophets of Ahaziah and Second Kings. They want to call down fire, but Jesus rebukes them. He rebukes them because his glory is not to be revealed in that way at least not now. He clear later in the passage, unbearable judgment will be unleashed on those who reject Jesus. But it's coming in the future, after his suffering. For the kingdom of God to come, Jesus must die. The glorious resurrection and ascension and enthronement happens after death. Disciples needed to learn this. And disciples today, we are in a similar position. Even though we live after the glorious resurrection of Christ, the exalted Christ we worship is in heaven. And so we live in days when the glory of Christ is still in many ways hidden. Right? The glory of Christ, when it's seen, is, is meant to be seen in us. In the church, trusting Jesus and loving each other. And so we live in this time of waiting, We live in the days of faith, not sight. And this comes with its own hardship, right? We're, We're waiting and there are those who reject the gospel who will persecute those who believe and preach the gospel. We may be rejected. Even though this comes with hardship for Christians, we also recognize it's a grace to the world. Because it means as long as judgment is delayed... Salvation and repentance are possible. We live in the days where the exalted king is patiently withholding the full weight of his judgment against man's sin. And he's doing so, so that his people can proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ's name. So like Jesus, we warn that judgment is coming, but we do so proclaiming that judgment can be avoided. It can be avoided by repenting and trusting in Christ's saving work on the cross. So disciples today, just like disciples in Jesus' day, must be prepared for rejection. And Jesus even assures us that when people reject us, if, if we are faithfully preaching the gospel, they are really rejecting Christ himself. You notice that in verse 16, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. When someone rejects the gospel, they're not rejecting you personally. I mean, they may not like you, I don't know. But they're ultimately rejecting Jesus. Rejecting God himself. With each of the disciples in verses 57 through 62, these people who either come to Jesus or or he calls them, We don't get a resolution to their stories. We wonder what happened to them. This man, when he heard about how foxes have holes but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, did did he go home sorrowful like other people did who met Jesus? What about you and me? When we hear about Jesus, the rejected Savior, when we're told that persecution is normal for Christians are we willing to follow the rejected Savior? Or are we addicted to being accepted by our neighbors? Do we want the same wealth and influence that our neighbors have? Do we want to sit at the cool kids' table? The glory and acceptance the world offers are appealing and tempting, aren't they? We may need to begin our growth in following Jesus by being honest, by being able to admit that we do want to sit at the kids' table, cool kids' table. We do want the wealth and influence of the world. We need to repent of that. We need to confess to God the ways we despise the rejected Saviour. We need to confess it to God. And it may be good to confess it with others. Talk about with other brothers and sisters who love you the way that you're tempted to despise the rejection that comes with following Christ. And also consider the worthiness of being rejected for Christ's sake. If Christ really is who he says he is, if he's really God in the flesh, if he's really the one who saves people from their sin, if he's really the one who provides true and ultimate relief to human beings that our suffering, then he's worth all the rejection we can imagine. It's better to be thought a fool for Christ's sake, for the sake of knowing and preaching Christ, than to be thought wise by the world. It's better to die with Christ than to live without him. Do you believe that? We can also take courage from the scriptures that rejection for the sake of Christ is a sure sign that we belong to Christ. Romans 8.17, the Apostle Paul writes that we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Peter wrote that when we endure in our suffering for doing good, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. If we suffer for righteousness, sake, he says, we will be blessed. We spoke earlier about how we warn that judgment is coming. In a similar way, Christians suffer rejection now, knowing that glory is coming. Jesus died and rose again, and he's in glory now. And he promises that same trajectory for us. We will die and rise again, but we will meet Christ in glory. But in the meantime... Disciples must be prepared for rejection. That's the first disciple. He was an eager volunteer. The second disciple is commanded by Jesus, follow me. See this in verse 59. To another he said, follow me. But this disciple has a reason for delay. He's got important business to attend to. He says, let me first go and bury my father. Seems like a legitimate request. And then Jesus says something again surprising and confusing. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In any culture, this is a shocking command, right? What responsibility should trump taking care of your your own dad's funeral arrangements? And if anything, the social conventions around burying the dead, in Jesus' day were were even more important for Jews. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus is not making any kind of categorical prohibition against caring for your family or going to your dad's funeral. He's not saying we should disregard such matters. But he is saying that something more important has come. Something even more important than those important things... So the point of this shocking response is to emphasize the positive thing Jesus commands. He tells his disciple, but as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Here is what's really important. Jesus is saying, I am am God come in the flesh, and here's what I say are your marching orders. Follow me and proclaim the kingdom of God. Disciples proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus is demonstrating that he has unique authority and power. He is God. He is this long-awaited prophet, greater than Elijah or Moses. And his commands now become the main priorities for God's people. What he says, we do. A shift is taking place. No longer do do God's people look back to the, the Old Testament covenants and laws, they look to this one, Jesus, and he says, go and proclaim the kingdom. And so that's what we give our life to doing, to proclaiming the kingdom of God. It's fair to ask them, what does it mean to proclaim this kingdom? If that's what we're supposed to be doing, how do we proclaim it? When we look at the instructions that Jesus gives to the 72, I think we, we find something very helpful in that Jesus tells them in verse 5 that when they enter a house, they're to say, peace to this house. He says, go your way, um, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one in the road. So you're, you're not just making social calls. When you enter a house, first say, peace be to this house, in verse 5. It may be tempting to think, well, this is just a customary greeting, this is maybe what Jews did. But no, there's no more to it than that. And that's because peace is essential to the proclamation of the kingdom. Just to see this more clearly, look back in chapter 7, probably just a couple pages back in your Bible, this incident I cited earlier with the woman, this notorious sinner who's washing Jesus' feet at the dinner party. If you recall there, Jesus uses her presence there and her great love for him to teach Simon the Pharisee about the connection between being forgiven much and loving much. But then after he's done teaching Simon the Pharisee, he turns to the woman In verse 48, this notoriously sinful woman. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He ignores them. And he says to the woman again, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman is distraught. Because of her sinfulness, and she's come to the Savior, and he pronounces three things. Forgiveness, salvation, and peace. Forgiveness, salvation, and peace. I think when we hear this peace pronounced by the disciples in chapter 10, this is what they're talking about. And this piece is, is not the piece of the anti-war movement of the 1960s and 70s. It's the peace of God announced to his enemies, people who are his enemies, because of their sin against him. It's relief from God's judgment and restoration to fellowship. This peace is the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is the good news. Though God made us happy and holy, we rejected his good will for us. We rebelled against him. And because of this rebellion, all people are born in a state of slavery to sin, spiritually dead. It means our our hearts are set on serving ourselves and not serving God, our maker. And so we make ourselves God's enemies by our sin. We are all in the state of that sinful woman. But not all of us know it. The good news is that God didn't leave us there. The Son of God took on flesh in order to suffer and die in the place of sinners. God's own Son was born so that he could be treated like an enemy. So that God's true enemies, us, could have peace with God. Christ died to pay the price of sin that we cannot pay. And sinners receive this forgiveness Receive salvation by repenting of their sin, by owning it, by saying, I deserve hell because of my sin, and trusting that Jesus took care of your sin on the cross. So it's by faith that sinners are forgiven and reconciled and saved. By faith, we have peace with God, we're saved from the wrath of God that we deserve gloriously this is what Jesus came to proclaim he didn't come to proclaim immediate judgment he came to proclaim peace to those who are far away from God that is very good news that when God shows up his word is peace so part of what we proclaim the main part is this peace but there is this part of judgment that we do proclaim we proclaim that judgment is coming The kingdom of God includes both proclamations. So we we see this in verses 8 through 11, when Jesus is instructing them on what to do when they enter a town. So he says that they should enter towns, and if they're received, they'll, they'll heal the sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near you. The kingdom of God has come near is the, is the, is the essence of the proclamation in both. But with this, this second proclamation, it includes this warning of judgment. And once Christ says this, it sends him off in kind of a, a rabbit trail of pronouncing judgments coming. This is when he, he pronounces judgments against these cities of Galilee, and he, he compares them to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are like the, the coastal elite cities, the places where all the trade happens, but they're Gentile cities. Jesus says, it's, it's going to be better for those Gentile cities, those worldly places, than it will be for you, because you've seen me and you've rejected me. So we do announce that judgment is coming but we announce that judgment can be avoided. Unbearable judgment is coming, but can be avoided by faith in Christ. Disciples are given this job by Jesus. This is your marching order proclaim the kingdom of God. Don't go bury your dead, you go and proclaim the kingdom, no matter how it's received. And there's a reason why this is the message that should reorient us and grip us. And that's because disciples are first and foremost those who have been saved by this gospel. When the disciples return from their mission trip, they come back to Jesus and they're rejoicing about the great power that they've exhibited over evil spirits. And Jesus first celebrates with them and he, he says he sees Satan fall. But then he offers them a gentle rebuke in verse 20. Do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Disciples are first and foremost those who were headed for hell, but have been saved by Christ. Now we're no longer in bondage to death and hell. Our names are written in heaven. That's the only reason anyone's a disciple is because God has saved us through the gospel. To put an exclamation point behind this idea, Jesus says that the only way anyone could even know this gospel truly is if God graciously chooses to reveal it. Keep in mind, he's just warned the towns of Galilee about how they've perceived something. They've seen wonderful works. They've heard the gospel message, but they've not repented. Now well, look at what he says has happened to the disciples. First begins with a prayer to God, and then he turns and talks to his disciples in verses 21 through 24. It says, In that same hour, as the disciples have returned. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Just stop there. All things have been revealed to the Son by the Father. And the Son and the Father have this perfect knowledge of each other. They, They know the truth about God. And the Son can reveal Him to some. And now He turns to disciples he says privately blessed are the eyes that see what you see for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it the disciples are not disciples because they were so wise and insightful just like Israel wasn't a country blessed by God because they were so awesome it's clear they were not it's clear that we are not So wise, insightful, and awesome. The only reason any of us can see and know Christ clearly is because God the Father and God the Son have graciously opened up our eyes. He's blessed us with supernatural sight and hearing. God's gospel work begins with this spiritual awakening. If you're here thinking, well, I don't know if I've I've had that. This is a good thing to pray for. God, open my eyes to see your truth. It's a prayer God is blessed and honored to answer. And if you're a Christian here, do you you see how blessed you are? We've reduced blessed to a silly hashtag, haven't we? But the blessing of God here means that you won't die and go to hell, it means that you're not blind to Christ's work anymore. To be blessed by God means that you've heard the pronouncement of peace as an enemy of God, and you believe it, and you've been forgiven and reconciled and saved. This is why we rejoice and why we proclaim. Disciples are like lambs among wolves, and yet no one can harm us, he says, because our names are written in heaven. Disciples will be rejected. We will be socially outcast. We may be impoverished. We may even be killed like Jesus was. But none of those things can separate disciples from the love of God in Christ. And all of this is true, not because we are wise or mighty, but because of the gracious will of God. This is why disciples proclaim the gospel because this gospel has saved us. It's reoriented our entire lives. We have our lives. We live because of Christ. And so we give our lives to Him. Again, we don't know whether the second disciple obeyed Jesus' command to follow Him. Did He give Himself to proclaiming the kingdom? Doesn't say. Will you give yourself to proclaiming the kingdom? One of the reasons we gather as a church is to proclaim this good news. And where the first disciples had miracles to confirm the gospel, we are the miracle. Our love for each other, our supernatural unity in Christ displays the manifold wisdom of God. So one way you can reorient your life around proclaiming the gospel is to give yourself to a good church. Love the members there. Proclaim the gospel with them. You can ask, do your relationships in the church reflect your commitment to proclaiming the gospel? Or are you worried about other affairs? We also proclaim the gospel in our relationships. So, parents proclaim the gospel to their children, husbands and wives proclaim the gospel to each other, employees proclaim the gospel to their coworkers, neighbors proclaim the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel, speaking the words of the gospel, is what disciples do. So when Jesus tells this one unnamed disciple to go go preach the gospel, leave the the dead to bury their own dead, he's, he's speaking to every disciple. He's saying, reorient your life around proclaiming the gospel. Is that what you're giving your life to? Or have other priorities pushed aside proclaiming the gospel? Disciples proclaim the gospel. Finally, this third disciple that comes to Jesus He's another volunteer. He comes to Jesus in verse 61 of chapter 9. I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me first say farewell to those at home, at my home. It sounds a bit like the prophet Elisha. When the prophet Elijah called him, he said he was he was plowing the, the fields with a yoke of oxen. He said, Well, first let me go say bye to my mom and dad. And Elijah said, fine. And Elisha goes home, and he doesn't just say bye. He slaughters the oxen and throws a feast. I mean, it probably took two days to do this. But then he goes and follows Elijah, and that seemed fine. We don't get any negative comments about Elisha. But Jesus seems to be doing something different. He's displaying his unique authority as the God-man in the flesh and saying, to follow me, to be fit for my kingdom, you must have a single-minded devotion to me. It's because disciples represent their king. Disciples represent their king. Disciples are deputies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout this passage, we see Jesus doing this deputizing work, we might say. So it's clear Jesus is in charge. He's telling the disciples where to go, what to do, he's sending them here and there. He determines who is and who is not a worthy disciple. Even when he begins his instructions to the 72 by teaching them how to pray, he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. He wants them to know, I am the sender, you are the goer. This is my work. I authorize you to do it, and I will equip you to do it, and you're not to carry out your own agenda. You're not to look back. You're not to greet others along the way. You're to do the job you've been deputized to do. You're to represent me. You're to focus on what I've given you. And so we see this in every aspect of our lives. We're to be representatives of the king. Even in the way that we depend on God to provide for us. So The disciples were told not to carry stuff with them. No knapsacks. No extra stuff. They're not supplying their own needs for this journey. Now, this is not to be taken as like a, an iron law for missionary work, as we just send people out completely unprepared and, and trust God. But, but the underlying principle is essential it's God's work, and God provides for his representatives, and his representatives trust him to provide. Think about ourselves as a church. We might think, well, we need more people and resources, but we trust that God has equipped us for where we are, and we're going to do God's work in the strength and with the provision that he's supplied, relying on the Lord to do his work. We understand that we're deputies, his commissioned representatives, and this changes the way we live. We want to live in such a way that our lives reflect well on the one we represent. I mean, don't we know how scandalous it is when a, when a police officer is, is exposed as corrupt? Right? It, it brings questions on the entire department, you know, and and even we look at how, how will the department deal with him? Will they, will they rob, you know, take away his badge and, and expose him to criminal prosecutions? We, we, we don't want to be that, that police officer who brings shame on the badge. We don't want our lives to be the cause of any shame brought upon the good news. We, we know we represent our king. The fact that we also represent Christ should make us bold. right? We're not speaking on our own authority we're speaking the message he's revealed as those deputized by him. We represent him as his church. So we speak his message boldly. And as we've already talked about, we don't get personally offended when the message is rejected. You know, what's on the line when you share the gospel? Your reputation may be on the line. You may lose social standing. But ultimately, you're there to present Jesus. And if they reject you, it's Christ they're rejecting. It may come at a personal cost, but ultimately this mission is not about us. It's about the Lord making his good news of salvation known. And he's pleased to use you and me to carry out that work. The question this last disciple raises is: who is fit for this work? Clearly, this one who looks back is not fit. But does this mean we have to clean ourselves up, get the kind of the heart internal scrubbing brush out, and get rid of all other motives? I think we're meant to recognize we cannot make ourselves fit. The real question of this is, is has your heart been captured by the gospel? That's the only way to become fit. Have you been captured by the gospel? Or are your loyalties divided? You've heard the gospel, but you'd rather have the approval of the world. You see something good about Jesus, but you don't want any of his rejection or suffering. Has your heart been captured by the gospel? Forgiveness, salvation, and peace These gifts of the gospel are only available to those who know how lost they are, who know how big of a sinner we are. If that's you, if you're coming to that place today of seeing the bigness of your sin, then come to the Lord. Come to Christ. He will make you fit. There's that wonderful line, Let not fitness make you, I can't remember now, (laughs) make you wonder. All the fitness God requires is to feel your need of him. That's what makes you fit for this kingdom. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Today is the day to come to be made fit by Christ believe and be saved. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, what good news that when you came, you came announcing peace. We don't deserve to have been spared your wrath And yet you have shown your mercy to us. You have poured out your gracious will upon us by by showing us Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that we would cling to him. That we would feel our need for him. And rejoice that because of Jesus, our names are written in heaven. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
3: Now is our time to come together and to celebrate communion, also known as the Lord's Supper. And as we consider the Lord's Supper this morning, we recognize that the disciples were attempting to struggle with mysteries that had not yet been revealed to them. How could the God-man, the King of Israel, come and then be humbled and have to go and sacrifice himself on the cross? But as believers on this side of the cross, we have this wonderful reminder week after week where we can see the metaphorical body of Christ, and we can see the metaphorical blood of Christ. But in a very real sense, these elements are feeding us spiritually by faith. So as we Consider what we're going to do again together this morning in the Lord's Supper. This is an opportunity to respond to what we have heard by faith. To consider how we have been sinful in our uh, our desire not to be rejected like our Savior was rejected. In our desire to let the affairs of the world uh, capture our hearts instead of the gospel. And so as we consider our sin this morning, as we confess our sin this morning, we need to uh, consider how gracious the Lord has been to us and how he has given his son for us. This Lord's supper is a meal celebrated by the church, but it's a meal for sinners, repentant sinners who have turned away from their sin and toward faith in Christ. So if you don't know yourself to be someone who is a sinner today, then this meal is not for you, and taking it will do nothing for you. But instead of taking this meal, what we would ask you to do is to consider that Christ is for you. Consider your sin. Consider your need for a Savior and what he has done for you. Because of all that this meal means, it comes with instructions about how to approach it. The Apostle Paul warns us not to eat of this meal in an unworthy way, but rather to come to the table examining ourselves and especially our relationships with our brothers and sisters in the church. We're meant to come to this table united in love, confessing our sin to God and resting only on the blood of Jesus for our forgiveness. And so in order to do this, we're going to take a few moments to privately confess our sin to God and then I'll lead us in a prayer of corporate confession. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning confessing that we are a people in need of mercy. We confess, Lord, that far too often we despise the suffering that you have called us to as your disciples. That we are enraptured with the idea of glory and victory but we are ashamed of suffering. Help us, Lord, to see that you have forgiven us through the suffering of your son, Jesus, and that in suffering for his sake and for the sake of the gospel, there is great blessing. There is eternal life. Father, we also confess that we are far too preoccupied with the things of this world instead of the mission that you have given us to go and to proclaim the good news to the world. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to be salt and light. Remembering that the salt that preserves and the light that cleanses is the gospel. It's the work of Jesus Christ, him given for sinners. Father, we thank you for his willingness to come and to die on our behalf. And we thank you for his resurrection that justifies us. We thank you for his ascension. We thank you that he rules and reigns and that he is coming back. So Father, as we go about our lives this week, we pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to fight sin, to encourage one another, to proclaim the good news to our friends and our neighbors, and to not despise rejection for the sake of your name. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Our mighty God and heavenly Father, in his great mercy offers us assurance of pardon and forgiveness of sin to all who with sincere repentance and true faith turn to him. Hear these words of comfort, from Psalm 106. Our fathers when they were in Egypt did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Amen. As we can as we come to the table now, it is open this morning to everyone who is a baptized member in good standing of an evangelical church. And by evangelical church, we mean one in which the gospel that you heard here proclaimed this morning is also proclaimed. In a moment, uh, those helping to distribute will come forward and take the bread and the cup, and they will pass them out to the congregation. Once you've taken the elements, please hold them, and we will all take them together. So if you're helping to distribute, please come forward. And as we do that, the rest of us will sing, come Thou fount of every blessing.
2: See never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me song, melodious sonnet, it, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mountain fixed upon it, Mount of God's unchanging love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. And I hope by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me with a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger Interposed his precious blood Oh, to grace how great a debtor Daily I'm constrained to be Let that grace now like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to thee Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Oh, that day when free from sinning I shall see thy lovely face, clothed in the, the blood washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day.
3: With the words of institution, we set apart these common elements for a holy purpose. We receive these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and following. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we all share in the one body of Christ given for us in his death, take this bread and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Jesus said, For I tell you that from now on, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Since Christ drank the cup of God's wrath for the forgiveness of our sins, take this cup and be filled with the hope of eternal life. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Before the benediction, we'll take a final moment to silently reflect on what we've heard from God's word today and to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Please rise to receive this blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. And happy new year.